Hey, you're listening to the teaching podcast of Crossridge Women, and this is our fall 2022 study in the book of Revelation. For more resources and information, you can find us at crossridge.church slash wstudy. Okay, let's just start by praying, and then we'll see where we're at. Lord Jesus, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for the book of Revelation and for this vision of Jesus that has been unveiled for us, that you are not about hiding um, the truth about your character. You're not keeping yourself veiled from us, but you reveal yourself to us, and we're grateful for that. Lord, I ask that tonight as we just open up the word together as sisters, that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear that we could be an encouragement to each other even as you um, form us in your truth and your nature, and that we would also faithfully and obediently respond to uh, what you are teaching us through this book. We think of the women who cannot be here tonight, who are ill or who need your healing um, or who just... Um, have other complications, we just ask that you would also be near to them, that you would reveal yourself to them, that they would hear your voice and and be encouraged and um, just challenged to endure in the faith. In your name we pray, amen. Okay, we are going to be talking about chapter six and seven together tonight. So are things getting strange yet? A little bit. A little strange, right? Um, I really like this quote by Brett Davis. Um, He's one of my favorite commentators on Revelation, and he says this, Revelation's strangeness is less about hiding things from us and more about revealing what we've stopped seeing. Revelation helps us see by being strange. And we talked about that last week, that... It's not new things that we're seeing, but it's old truths, maybe painted in vibrant fluorescent colors so that we really pay attention. And we're going to be talking about some things that are not new. If you, if you have been around the church, if, you've, you know, um, if that's been part of your life, you've heard the gospel many times and, and um, just the different aspects of it. And yet, uh, Revelation is saying, like, are are you seeing it afresh? Are you seeing it anew? Is it causing um, this encouragement and comfort and warning and just, like, propelling you forward um, to endure in faith? So So let's talk about where we're at first before we jump into 6 and 7. I think it's always important to anchor ourselves where we are in the book. Um, So we're in the center of this section. it's basically 6 to 16, I would say, is, is a huge section. And you could give it a title if you wanted that's, that said, Judgment Coming from the Throne. Everything in 6 to 16 is all tied back to that throne room that we saw last time we were together in chapters 4 and 5. The original reader that we talked about, these seven churches that John is writing to, 
they need encouragement and they need comfort. We said that they need to um, persevere and not give up because following Jesus is hard for them. Um, and, and they are suffering and it, it could be a temptation to give up or to um, just to turn away or to not follow Jesus wholeheartedly and maybe to make small little concessions when it comes to their life and their business and, and how they live in this Roman world where Caesar is God and that affects also their work. So the Lord knows that they need what they need and what he thinks they need, interestingly, is a vision of Jesus. And he thinks that they need to see the spiritual reality behind the temporal reality that they're experiencing. What life is like for them, he says, he thinks they need to see the truth, the spiritual reality of what is behind that. That Jesus is king, God is sovereign, that he has a plan, um, and the plan is moving forward, even when sometimes it feels like maybe Jesus is not on the throne, right? So tonight, I wanted us to have a look at these chapters, 6 and 7, in terms of their structure. And we talk about that a lot when we're going to um, dive into a book or a passage of scripture, that it can be helpful to uh, sort of get a handle on how has the author structured it, because then we can, that gives us some insight into uh, the meaning that he intended. So um, 6 and 7 together as a unit... I think it was a question. Uh, no, I can't find it. I think one of your first questions was like, uh, take a moment to observe how John has structured this section. 26, is that it? Oh, six. It is page 26. Question six, got it. Now I'm with you. Okay, sorry, I have had, a, I've had sick kids for, since Saturday. So my brain is a little like, oh. Not, I'm not totally with it tonight, but Jesus is on the throne and the Holy Spirit is real and the teacher. So that's what we believe. Okay, so let's talk about that. How did John structure this section? This week in our large group observation time, we wanted to talk about the structure of Revelation 6 and 7. So we talked about how we saw it broke up. First of all, we saw this big section of the six seals and then a large section of the throne room. And within those two larger sections, we tried to break it up a little bit more. So we saw seals one to four sort of as being a unit. We took that that cue from this symbolic number of four that it sort of means all of creation that it goes together and then after the first four seals we saw seals five and six they could be two separate sections but they also did relate to each other in really key ways um, and then we saw in the throne room broken up into two parts this interlude or the ceiling and then worship from the throne room we also talked about how dialogue is a really important thing to look at when we're studying the scriptures, and especially, I think, in chapter 6 and 7, the dialogue is key to understanding the structure. I would say that this, the dialogue John is using to sort of advance his plot or advance his, his key main idea or his theme for these two chapters. So let's look at that. For the first four seals, this first chunk, they do seem to be united um, by this word, come. 
come is said, and then as the seals are opened, these horses come and they bring with them some sort of calamity. They're also united by these colors. We, we talked about this first horse being white and it can throw people off sometimes. And, and often we look at that and we think that could be Jesus because of the, the white color and this idea of purity. But also if we know the rest of the book, we know that in Revelation 19, Jesus does ride in on a white horse and his name is faithful and true. So we introduce this, this new literary technique that we're going to see a lot of for the rest of the book, and that is counterfeits, these big contrasts. John uses these contrasts a lot, light and dark and good and evil and the lamb and the beast, but also we see that Satan and his angels masquerade as angels of light. And that is what we see here. We see this counterfeit to Jesus the king riding in. Instead, we see this counterfeit king that rides in to dominate, to oppress, to conquer uh, in a way that is very different than the way that we just saw the lamb conquered in chapter 4 and chapter 5. But let's get back to this word come because when we read that we we think okay the seal is opening God's plan is coming this is going to be great and instead what do what comes what is it that comes it is like we said domination it is war it is scarcity and injustice and it is death. Um, and when we look at that word come, we can, we can look back to the Old Testament. We can see that the prophets used it often to describe judgment. What was coming was judgment. And definitely, as we see the first four seals uh, opened and the, the scroll is opening, we see that this is a form of God's judgment on the earth, that just handing um, this creation over to humanity, here's what is the result. It is, it is domination, it is war, it is scarcity and injustice, and it is death. Um, it, doesn't, it doesn't sound amazing, but also, uh, if you think of this word come in a different way, a few people suggested that, that perhaps it could be the angel saying to John, come, come and see, come and see what happens as the scroll is open. And I think this fits John's pattern of, of hearing something and then looking and seeing something surprising. And, you know, we often say that uh, we try to just to to explain sin and suffering in our world by saying we live in a broken world. But, you know, something we learned in the book of Psalms, and, and it's repeated here in Revelation, is that there is war. There is a war going on in spiritual realities. It started in Genesis 3.15, and it is between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And as the seals are open and as God's plan goes forward what happens is other this other kingdom comes and there is a kingdom clash and how we experience that on the earth is in all these outcomes that there is domination war scarcity and injustice and death that is what we see here on the earth yet we can know that this is all proceeding according to God's plan he is holding it carefully and, and we do we cry out just like in in the, the fifth seal we we cry out and say how long how long can we can we withstand this Lord how long are you going to allow this to happen we cry out against injustice 
that is how the godly respond. We, we cry out for the lamb, for God to help. The ungodly, however, they, they also cry out. And we see that in, in the sixth seal. But they cry out not to God. They cry out for creation to help them. And they say, fall on us, hide us from the face of this lamb. And in that sixth seal, we see a lot of these images of judgment that that we've been talking about, cosmic calamities involving the stars and the sun and the sky. We will continue to see that as we move through Revelation. Let's look at the dialogue in chapter 7 then, in this interlude, um, this hopeful phrase, do not harm everyone, do not Do not harm the earth or the sea or the tree until we seal the servants of our God on their forehead. That's verse 3 of chapter 7. And we see this number is sealed or protected. First, let's look at the number. Okay, we talked about how that is symbolic. It is 12 times 12 times 1,000, which 12 being the the number of the tribes. Also, we talked about 12 as being the number of um, the apostles talking about all the people of God. 1,000 being a symbolic number, meaning very many. We talked about how this genealogy that's given is unexpected. Uh, Dan's missing, Ephraim's missing, Manasseh and Joseph are there, which you wouldn't expect to have Joseph if Manasseh's there. Then typically they would write it Manasseh and Ephraim. Dan being missing, a tribe that was instrumental in, in bringing idolatry into the land, the settled land of Israel. And it's also out of order. So we know they're not saying uh, that the people of Israel, the the 12 tribes, the the actual, uh, the lineage of Abraham is being sealed. No, this is the people of God. They are being sealed. And let's talk about that for a minute. Because when we hear about this seal or the mark, okay, this is very commonly known in Revelation. If you don't know much else, you know about this mark on a forehead or a hand or something like that. But here we already see it that before we get to the mark of the beast, which is more common, we see that God's people are sealed. And actually, it's not the first time we see this in Revelation either. I mean, even back, if you go to Genesis, remember that Cain leaves the garden and he is sent out after uh, killing his brother Abel. He has to go. Um, That is part of the judgment on him from from murdering his brother Abel. And he cries out to God and says, but but people are going to kill me like I'm not safe. And God in his mercy, in his mercy, there is salvation in judgment. And it says that he puts a mark on Cain so he could be protected. We see it again in Exodus, don't we? The people paint their door posts and the angel of death in the final plague passes over their house and spares them from the death of the firstborn that every other house that does not have the mark of the blood on the doorposts, they experience that judgment in the death of their firstborn. Uh, it reminds us of Ezekiel 9 too. There's another um, part in that book where, where angels are marking the people of God and then they're told uh, not to harm any that, that have this mark of God. So it's really important to, to start seeing this as, as a part of Revelation, but it's also connected to the rest of Scripture that the believers are protected. That there is a sense that judgment is coming and yet the believers 
the godly, those who look to the face of the Lamb as their refuge, that they are protected. And because of that, what do they do? Oh, what do we do? We worship. We worship. And there's this beautiful worship coming from the throne room to end chapter 7. Salvation belongs to our God. And then through the last few verses, we see a picture of of what we experience as the people of God. And it's so different from that terrifying uh, idea of judgment, isn't it? Being before the throne of God being sheltered by him, no hunger or thirst, not being affected by sun or scorching heat, and guided to springs of the water of life, and God wiping away every tear from our eyes. That is definitely something that we will experience uh, in the presence of God someday. That is our eternal future as those who choose to follow the Lamb wherever he goes. Um, But it is also something we can, in a way, spiritually experience here in the midst of what is happening as these two kingdoms are at war. As the kingdom of evil comes against the kingdom and the rule of the Lamb who is on the throne. All right, that was our large group discussion in a bit of a nutshell. Uh, Now what you'll hear next is some pre-teaching about where we're moving forward in chapter 8 and 9. In 4.11 it says, You have created all things, and by your will they exist and are created. So this idea that he is the king, he gets to set the agenda. It's tough. But if hardship exists within his will, can we believe it is for his glory and our good? And I also was thinking about how the lamb's victory looks a lot like slaughtering. And, you know, we talk about this all the time. We have been for the last two studies, this idea of the messianic shape of the Christian life, that we say that the Bible is messianic literature. It tells the story of this Messiah who takes a walk into death because on the other side is resurrection life. And so those who are his followers are going to take that same walk, a walk into death, where we know on the other side is life, Um, that God rescues and saves Maybe not from suffering, but through suffering. Uh, If you've gone through suffering or you've experienced hardships, I think you probably can put up your hand and give testimony and say, yes, he rescues, he refines, uh, he purifies, he forms, he loves, he gives peace. He does all these things through suffering. Um, And I think the reason is because in suffering, what we get is him. That's what he gives us. When we feel like we're not getting what we should get, what we want to get, what would be the best thing from his hand, what we have left is what? His face. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's what we have left, his presence. Uh, And so I think the question for us in, and, you know, as we're talking about these martyrs, and maybe I never answered that question you know, they get their white robe there. Is that significant? And I think what, what we're supposed to see about these martyrs is that they're crying out and saying, this is unjust. And it is. They were killed 
for for their worship of Jesus, for their love and dedication to Jesus, and they are martyred, and they're saying, "How long until God makes things right? How long till He avenges our our wrongful death and this injustice?" And I think the point is not maybe it's not like you know when they get it or or what happens, but that they are told it will it will be okay. Like I'm taking care of it. And judgment will come in my timing. But for now, what? They are declared righteous. That's what happens, okay? This idea of of the white robes. They're declared righteous. They did what they were supposed to do. They stayed true to Jesus when it was the hardest. Yeah, that's, that's a word. So the question to us, and I think there's lots of opportunity here in Revelation for us to keep um, asking it or or contemplating it, but is will we accept difficulty, hardship, suffering, whatever you want to call it, as an invitation into intimacy, or will we reject it in favor of comfort? Hmm. Will we accept difficulty or hardship or suffering? as an invitation into intimacy with Jesus? Or we will, will we reject it in favor of comfort? And the early contemplatives, they used to, they used to pray um, saying, we receive pain as a pathway to peace. It's interesting to think about. Okay. Let's do a little bit of just pre-work in chapters 8 and 9 so we know where we're going once we leave here tonight, okay? These next two weeks, they're going to be heavy. (laughs) I think you know, but I just, I have to say it. Do I say that every week? No, no, no. Like, this is really heavy because last week it was heavy, but we got to go back to the throne room, which is hopeful, right? At the end of... Chapter seven, when you're like, yes, this is what we look to, you know, like this, the multitude singing and right worship. Yes, we're not going back to the throne room in eight to nine. Um, In fact, it ends in a very dark and sad and heavy place. Um, But here's what's happening. So the prayers of God's people for his judgment, this how long, O Lord? Okay, are rising before the throne like incense. They come to his ear. And fire, which in the Old Testament has always represented God's judgment, is going to be flung down on the earth. And creation itself and those who dwell on the earth experience judgment. Um, And I hope that you'll see again a parallel shape now as we move into the trumpets, a parallel shape to the seals. So in in, um, the trumpets one to four, creation is, is affected. You could say it's the effects of judgment on creation, perhaps. And then after the fourth trumpet, Revelation 9, 13, there's this like terrifying... Maybe. I don't know. I find it terrifying. Sometimes birds are terrifying. 
an eagle flying high overhead, crying out in this loud voice, woe, woe, woe to those who live on the earth because of the remaining trumpet blasts that the three angels are about to sound. And it's kind of like the volume and the intensity just gets cranked way up. Okay. And then trumpets five to six, we see humanity is affected. And that's kind of what we saw in the seals. If you look up here, actually, like creation, and I guess by way of creation, humanity is always affected, but there's this, this effect on creation. And then you see the response or the effect that it's having on, on humanity. So sort of similar thing. If the trumpets, as you're reading chapters eight and nine, remind you of Mount Sinai or Jericho or the Exodus plagues, you're doing the good work of interpretation because they should. They are patterned after um, the Exodus plagues and they are reminiscent of the trumpets in Joshua. So we'll be doing um, just looking back at the Old Testament there. And also, again, um, Mount Sinai and this idea of a word from the Lord and the judgment of God is also in view. And I would say that this is a place where in chapters eight and nine, linear interpretations and readings start to fall apart a bit. Okay. Now this is just my opinion. I, I have people in my life who I love, who hold very strongly to linear and literal interpretations of, of revelation. Um, but I think, and you might have a good reason for this, but but you're going to see if if you start to think this isn't making sense, just check yourself and see if maybe you're trying to make it fit linearly. Because in the seals this last week, two weeks, uh, we saw the sky fall apart, the stars fall to the earth and everything, remember? But then in the fourth trumpet, it says like the stars are going to go dark. And we're like, wait a minute. I thought the stars all fell to the the ground and all of a sudden the sky's back but the sky split and it all rolled up like a scroll and the mountains are gone and it's not going to really make sense i think two literal readings start to fall apart a bit here because you are going to read about one third of the sea turning to blood and you're going to think hmm from what i know about liquids <laughs> doesn't really seem scientifically possible um, and it doesn't, right? So just keep keep in mind this idea of recapitulation. I, I think that I think it is the the way that the text asks us to read it. And what that is is we're going in a cycle. So we're going back and we're gonna look at the same thing. We're gonna look at judgment again through maybe a different window, right? We're walking around the house, we're gonna look at it from a different angle to get a different perspective. It's the same events retold in this new cycle. Um, so in the seals, perhaps um, you could say that what, what the seals talk about is what we can expect. Here we're believers, and here's what we're gonna see between the first and second coming of Christ. We're gonna see a lot of hardship and suffering. Some people will die. We will lament. We will be saying, how long until you make things right? Um, but then we do have assurance that judgment is coming and will come. Um, and then in the trumpets, we could say that what we see is what to expect as the final judgment comes on unrepentant idolaters. The emphasis really here is on those who dwell on the earth. 
in the trumpets. So um, a little bit about judgment because the theme is going to be judgment for a while. We're stuck here. We're stuck in judgment for a while. Um, and I just wanted to encourage you that what, what you believe about judgment, what we believe about judgment is really important. Um, our culture, I think, likes the idea of justice. It's very popular, but maybe not so much the idea of judgment. And, and I wonder why is there this dichotomy? And, and as Christians, we can maybe speak some beautiful truth into that, right? That how can you have justice without judgment? How can you have reconciliation without forgiveness? These are all profoundly Christian ideas. So we as the church have something to say. We have a voice about how these things work and how it works together. And this story um, from creation that is knit into us, that we sense, you know, justice is, is this good thing. Um, but it is, um, it's unappealing maybe in our tolerant culture and, and we can get a bit embarrassed or maybe uh, we just don't know how to talk about God's judgment. It's easier to talk about um, God's love. I think that we all know this, but it's, it's just worth saying that um, justice and judgment are inherently a part of God's nature. He said they are. And we can't have salvation without judgment either. Um, and like I said, we gravitate to one side or the other. But if we have one and we neglect the other, God is no longer good. So if God is just a God of salvation, then he can't do anything about this. He can't, he cannot do anything about the evil. He, he can't get rid of it. There's no judgment on evil. And if you are a victim, then that is not good news for you because you need God to judge the evil in this world. You need God to judge sin. It's probably easy if you are in a place of power or privilege, you know, then you, yep, God can judge those people. But if you are the victim, uh, you need God's judgment. And, and if we have God only as the judge and not the saving God, right, then, then we neglect the whole part of his character, his grace, um, that is the essence of the gospel and of his Holy Spirit. So um, how do we know this? How do we know? Why would I say that the nature of God inherently holds both? salvation and judgment where do you see this in scripture can you think of it sorry just to throw that out at you but if someone said where would you point to in the scripture um that you know judgment and salvation are maybe two sides of the same coin the cross right yeah number one in the new testament you see that in the cross that god judges sin thereby saving humanity yeah how about the old testament Yeah, all like some for what? Like, can you give an example? What's the biggest one? Yes, the Exodus, right? Salvation through judgment. Judgment comes on uh, the gods of Egypt and on Egypt. Um, the unrepentant Pharaoh and the Egyptians are judged and his people are saved. Yeah. Noah and the flood. 
even the fall, Adam and Eve, definitely the exodus, the exile out of the land of Israel. They're judged for their idolatry, and yet he saves a remnant and even brings them back um, to their land. Definitely, we said the cross. Uh, it's, it's a really important pattern throughout scripture. And it, the Exodus story in particular, it epitomizes, I think, God's salvation through judgment. And that's why it's so important in the Hebrew imagination. It's so important in Revelation. Really important in the trumpets and the bowls. So I'm going to tell you in the cross-references to go back and be reading about the plagues. Um, and we need to do it. But I think something to, to think about is that in the Hebrew imagination, the plagues of Exodus were seen as a decreation story. Okay, the, the flood is two, right? It's decreation. And there's this idea that, that God's sustaining hand in creation, the goodness of God over creation is removed. And that's the essence of judgment, is that he removes his goodness. He removes his sustaining hand. And creation falls apart and we see these like terrible things sort of that happen. That is ultimate judgment, the removal of his goodness. And that's what we see, um, especially in the first four trumpets. Somewhere else that I think this is super clear is in uh, Exodus 34, when God reveals his name to his people. Okay, so this is his name. He's, tell he's saying to them, I'm going to tell you who I am. And what does he say? The Lord, the Lord, compassionate and gracious slow to anger, and rich in steadfast love, maintaining faithful love to a thousand generations, forgiving iniquity, rebellion, and sin. He is a saving God. The next uh, line of the verse says, who will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. He is also a judging God. And he has anger at sin, and yet he is slow to anger. The Hebrew, you probably know, it says he has long nostrils. It takes a really long time for the, the anger to like get to his brain where he's like going to drop the hammer. It takes a really long time because his nostrils are so long. It's sort of a funny image, but that's what the Hebrew word is. And you mentioned the cross right away. It's so good that so many of you thought of the cross it's where we see judgment and salvation. I just want to read you this um, quote. It's from a writer um, and teacher and pastor named Sky Jatani. And he says this. I'll, I'll put this on the app. Through the cross, God judged the world's evil by revealing the magnitude of its horror and ugliness. For God to be truly just he must acknowledge the full gravity of evil and oppose it in every form. As Miroslav Volf writes, a non-indignant God would be an accomplice in injustice, deception, and violence, end quote. So with the cross, God isn't merely forgiving the world's evil. He is showing how truly terrible our own evil is. This is what makes the cross so powerful and utterly unique among world religions. According to the New Testament, the cross of Christ is simultaneously the device of God's judgment against evil and the instrument of his mercy towards those who've committed it. 
So one man's judgment becomes another man's mercy, right? Uh, you, we have been saved through judgment. The punishment that brought us peace, what does Isaiah 53 say? Was upon Jesus. It was upon him. And by his wounds, we are healed. Yeah. So as you study uh, chapters 8 and 9 this week, keep that in mind that God saves through judgment. It's for this this reason, it is good news. Judgment is good news. It's how salvation comes. Um, And judgment condemns the unrepentant. And yet, this interesting thing happens. It refines and purifies his people. And if you, I I messed up the cross-references. You probably noticed this week there were cross-references here this week that were supposed to be for next week. So you'll just be extra prepared. Um, But I sent you out Ezekiel 14, because that's the one that that fell off that was supposed to be in there instead of Jeremiah. And in Ezekiel 14, it talks about the judgment of God in these four ways that are very reminiscent of the seals. And it it says that that God's people are actually purified and refined through it, that when they come through it, you'll look and say, like, look at God's people. They've been look at how how they've been purified and refined through judgment. Um, so a few more things about judgment. I love this quote from Brett Davis. He says, judgment looks like the world crucified so it can experience resurrection. And that is what it looks like in in Revelation. But judgment's also surrounded by the worship of heaven. So I told you that we're not going to get back to the throne room and we're not. Yet if you keep following through on either side of judgment, you do hear worship. And the worship in heaven are saying things like this, true and just are your judgments, oh God. They're they're praising God's judgment. They're not saying, oh, this is kind of embarrassing. Like he's he's just, he's, he's a little over the top. They're not saying that. Those in heaven are saying your judgments are true and just. And they know because uh, judgment brings forth salvation and resurrection life and they're experiencing it. So they know. Uh, The question for us, and I sort of already started talking about this at the beginning, but that's, do we see the judgment of God as beautiful and holy and perfect and true and just? Is that how we see it? Or do we see judgment, the judgment of God as useful, particularly for other people? Right? Our enemies, the people that really need God to deal with them. Do we see the judgment of God as beautiful, holy, and perfect? Or do we only see it as useful for other people, especially in particular our enemies? Um, I think when it comes to thinking about final judgment, most people probably think the most terrifying thing is that, you know, the sky seems to fall apart or, you know, if we're, especially if we're reading it literally, like the moon is red and there's all this cosmic disruption and it's, and, and thunder and lightning. It does, it sounds terrifying, doesn't it? But think back about what you studied this week in, in chapter six. What did the people on the earth find the most terrifying about the judgment. 
What was terrifying to those who dwell on the earth? Look back at chapter 6. What's that? Yeah, what does it say? Thank you. Say it again. Yeah, hide us from the face of the one seated on the throne. They're terrified of the face of the Lamb. Yeah, that is what is the most terrifying thing in judgment for the unrepentant, the face of the Lamb. And we've said the face of God throughout all of Scripture, especially the Old Testament, represents what? His presence. Yeah, the face of God is how in the Old Testament, the Old Testament writers always talk about the presence of God. So, yes, I have a lot of questions for you tonight, but do you know it? Do you know the face of God? Do you know the presence of God? Have you experienced it? Have you known it? Is it beautiful to you? Is it, is it holy? Is it comforting? Is it encouraging to you? Uh, Ephesians 1.13 says this, When you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and when you also believed, you were sealed in him with the promised Holy Spirit. If you know his presence, if you know the face of the Lamb, the Spirit of God in you, then you can stand, can't you? Who can stand? God's people can stand. There they are before the throne. And what are they saying? Chapter 7, verse 15. They are before the throne of God, and they serve him day and night in his temple. The one seated on the throne will shelter them. They will no longer hunger. They will no longer thirst. The sun will no longer strike them, nor will any scorching heat. There will come a day when we all stand before the throne, those of us who have followed the Lamb wherever he goes, and we will be declared righteous in, in robes washed in his blood, right? Um, and it does not sound terrifying, does it? For the Lamb who is at the center of the throne will shepherd them. He will guide them to springs of the waters of life, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Thanks be to God. It's the word of the Lord. Do you believe it's true? Yes. Yeah. Let's just pray. Lord, we do declare salvation belongs to you. It is within your hand, and it is your plan to save those who look to you, who look to you, the lamb that was slain, the one on the cross who takes away the sin of the world. God, help us to see um, this week as we dive deeper into judgment, just the necessity of of our eyes being open to our sin, uh, to sin in general, to the sin of, of the world, um, 
not as just a list of behaviors, but this inherent attitude that believes that we can choose which tree to eat from instead of listening to your goodness and your abundance. And in God, we do know that in seeing our sin as it is, as as broken and as harmful and as dangerous as it is, and, and the way that it, it blocks us from having full relationship with you, from knowing your abundance, from living in that freedom. We know that if we can see that rightly, God, that we will worship your judgment. We will welcome it, not just for our enemies, we will welcome it on, in, our, um, in our own life, in our own on our own sin, knowing that we can stand because we have washed our robes in the blood of the Lamb. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for, for his sacrifice that did it, that satisfied your wrath, that satisfies your judgment. God, that you look upon us in love that you want to, to dwell with us, that you want us to experience your peace and your love, your beauty, your abundance, your joy, even here in the midst of this earth that, that is, is marked still by death and, and injustice and scarcity and, and domination, that we can be people who know something different. And Lord, that that can be a light to those who um, we come into contact with. Give us uh, an urgency for those who are yet unrepentant, for those who have not seen the beauty of the Lamb. Just make us just overflowing with uh, the excitement over your goodness in salvation through judgment. And just let that be a witness to, to everyone we come in contact with this week. In your name we pray. Amen. Hey friends, thanks for studying along. And wherever you are, it's our prayer that you are knowing the blessing that comes from reading, hearing, and keeping the words of Revelation. We'll see you soon.